microphone turned on here. Did I turn it on or did I turn it off? Looks like I turned it off. So if you heard, yep, there it is. If you heard a really powerful off-key voice, it might have been me. My mic might have been on. I don't know. I thought I had it on. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Bill. Um, boy, it's exciting to be here. Uh, how many of you were able to be here last week? As Jerry concluded, concluded. I really, I really enjoyed um, some of the stuff that he brought out, uh, and I hope you guys could too. If you didn't get a chance to be here, um, look that up as I think Jerry kind of touched on a few points that we've been looking at throughout the year um, as we've been going throughout the scriptures, and he kind of just, um, he got, he cherry-picked, so um, it was fun, uh, actually, and to, to see that, uh, the, the line of um, tracing Esau and Jacob's lines, I mean, that was really astounding to me, just, I'd never seen that, I'd never noticed that, um, following all the way down to Jesus and Herod, kind of heading head-to-head, uh, head, both descendants of Esau and one the descendant of Jacob, um, son of the flesh and son of faith. And that was, that was amazing. Uh, so thank you, Jerry. Uh, I don't think he's here. He's preaching in Cottonwood today. But um, if he listens to this, thank you, Jerry. Um, really exciting, I think, this year. Uh, it's already been touched on a couple times, but the idea of going through the Bible in a year and how we're doing that, uh, it's been really fun uh, to me. Um, Again, I, I think it's already been said a couple times, but if you're not doing that, I would really encourage you to do it. Um, maybe, maybe the task of reading through the Bible in a year is daunting, and that's okay, um, but if you can even just pick up the bulletin and look at some of the passages that we'll be looking at, if you just want to peruse through and even do kind of an overscan, if you want to watch some videos that help you with it, I would really encourage it, just because there is such uh, a strength in I think our whole church going through this together. And when, I'm, when I was reading and preparing this week, it was actually kind of exciting because as I was reading this, knowing that you guys are reading the same text was really neat uh, and it's it fun to look into that. So I'm going to try over the next five weeks to pretty much try to summarize what we're going through. Uh, sometimes I'll skip ahead, sometimes behind, but I'm going to try to stick with it. Uh, but it is a bit of a daunting task because... In the next five weeks, we're going through all of Numbers, all of Deuteronomy, and a good part of Joshua. So we're going to touch on all three of those books, and um, I'll try to keep the sermons short, but uh, we'll see how this goes. It, it, is, it is hard when you, when you do that kind of thing. Um, you, as, a, as a teacher, you have the opportunity to kind of zero in on one thing, and I don't know, we may do that one week or two, um, but there's also a whole different kind of uh, scene that you see when you, when you do an overview and that's what I'd like to do. Um, as we've been looking through, and um, Carolyn, you might need to click in the screen there to get this thing started, I think. Oh, we got a sound. Um, don't you guys love technology? Have you, have you clicked inside the screen yet? Well, well, we'll get there. Um, as, I've, as I've been going through that, you just advance the slide once you figure it. Hey, there we go. Now it's working. Okay. Um, in case you were wondering if we're a very polished church. <laughs> uh, so um, 
as I've been reading through this, I've, I've heard a couple of you make comments, and I've heard myself make comments about sludging through this part of the Bible, you know, and how, how hard it is sometimes to read through the numbers and the Le- Levitical laws, and, and there's almost this kind of thought of like, man, if we can just get through this, and we'll get to the fun stuff of like the battles, and, and the, like, where's David? I've got to get to David. And um, I was just, I was thinking about, I think God kind of gently reprimanded me this last week, of just, you know, when we look at someone like David, um, you read all these things of, I love your law, I love your word. Psalm 119 is all about that. I mean, the longest book in the Bible is David writing about how much he loves the law, which to us is like some of the most sometimes boring parts of the Bible. So Jeff, thank you. Um, You fast forwarded through like the first two pages of my notes. So it's great. I don't know how you got those. Um, but, But really just in general, when we look at these things, they are a statement of God's character. And when we look at anything, any of these laws, it was the law um, of David. It was the law of the Old Testament prophets. It was the Bible, for the most part, of Jesus and the New Testament writers. Yeah, they had a few more writings of the prophets and stuff like that. But um, I was just kind of challenged this week in looking through this and not to get um, bogged down with with these these areas and feel like... um, you know, they're boring or slow or I just want to fast forward through them or peruse them real quick because they're just spending five chapters talking about counting people. But ask, really ask God, what do you want to show me of your character in that? So I would challenge you guys to keep doing that um, and look at the big picture. Um, So this week, if you guys have been reading through, we're in numbers and we're going to wrap it up, I think, in the next day or two in the reading schedule. Um, And again, that schedule's in the bulletin if you guys want to look at it, but it's also online and stuff. But we'll be wrapping up numbers soon. So today we're going we're gonna to do most of numbers. And um, as we do that and we look at these, um, that passage I had Bill read, I think is really critical for us as we look back at these Old Testament stories because this is a common theme we see throughout the Bible uh, into the New Testament writers and everything is they reference these stories and say these things are examples for you. They're given to be um, something that, that you learn from. And I think that's two-part. We can learn about... Um, both negative and positive examples of the Israelites and how they, uh, how they lived. The, but we can also look at God's character uh, in both of those. So as you read throughout these, I would ask that you ask God in prayer each morning to show you both of those things. Show me positive and negative examples. Show me how I can learn from the Israelites and, and their journey, and how, but also show me something of your character. Every time we open up the Bible, we should be asking those things but um, especially as we go through these and as we read Numbers and then into Deuteronomy, um, we'll ask God to show us those things. Um, today, what I would like to hopefully accomplish is to kind of, we'll do a quick overview of Numbers. We're going to go through four, oh, that's actually three because I had to cut one out due to time uh, this morning. Um, three main lessons I think that I'm going to pull out of um, Numbers and uh, then there's a couple strong warnings that I think we need to heed and we need to watch out for. So um, we're going to get going there. Before we do, uh, I kind of want to go through a quick overview of where we are in the biblical narrative overall. So um, if you look at this, it's kind of small, I realize, but this is going to go pretty quick. You know, just, and the reason I want to do this is because it's very important for us to see, especially, I think, um, on books like Numbers, 
where they fit into the whole story that God's teaching us. He's showing the whole Bible is a story of redemption. He's going from what I created, what went wrong, and then how I restored it. So we're trying to figure out where we are in this story. You guys know this, but we'll go through it. God created the world, Genesis 1 to 2, got messed up by Adam, but he promised a redeemer, Genesis 3.15. He said a seed would come out of Eve that would be the redeemer through the line of Seth. Mankind got really bad um, by the time of the flood, and um, very little written about that, just we know God barely interacted with mankind, and when God didn't intervene, mankind ran off a cliff. And so God um, all but wiped out mankind entirely because mankind had just, he just completely polluted the whole earth. But in his grace, he chose still to not give up on mankind. Gave us a man named Noah who kind of started all over. He's kind of a second Adam in that case. Um, and God, from there on, starts to take a more active role in mankind's history. Genesis 12 through 21, we start to see Abram, later named Abraham. God steps into this man's life, says, this is, I'm going to create a nation, and out of you, that Messiah is going to come, the one that will redeem and fix this problem you guys got yourself into. Abraham has a kid named Isaac. Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 kids who are the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's where we get those 12 tribes and where this kind of this nation begins to start. There's kind of this story of Joseph towards the latter part of Genesis. He goes down to um, Egypt through the circumstances that are there. And after he becomes ruler down there, second in command, uh, famine in the land. You have to remember um, Jacob and the other um, sons are still, they're actually in the promised land at this point. They're in the land that God says, I will give you, and yet there's this famine. And so they pack up, move everything they got, this small nation that's just started, and they move to Egypt for 400 years. Things get really bad there. A new pharaoh rises. He doesn't remember Joseph. And then God says, it's time to bring you back to that land. I I still want to do, I had a program and a plan I wanted to do in that land, so let's go back. God uh, redeems them and calls them out of um, Egypt. That's the first part of Exodus. Uh, A lot of the laws that go through the latter half of Exodus and and Leviticus is kind of like what Jeff was talking about. They're they're, um, both a moral and a national code. So you have to remember God was creating a new nation. Um, So many of the laws that we read and we're like, what? What's with the like the goat and the milk, like who cares? And, and it doesn't make sense to us, but there was laws that God was putting down simply because it's a, a nation he's setting up. And some of them were just food things, like some of the food restrictions were simply there wasn't, if you ate that back then, there's a pretty good chance you're going to get food poisoning, so God just says don't touch it. Um, so some of those lines get a little fuzzy, and you look at that law, but if you look at the fact God is creating a nation, a people, this is what a people that's going to be set apart looks like. That's kind of what it is. So here's where we come to numbers. And this is actually the journey from Egypt to the promised land. And numbers is kind of the story of that. And unfortunately, it's um, not a very pretty story as we look at that. Now, um, earlier in the year, uh, or actually it was last year, when we talked about doing this, we recommended that if you guys can read along on the app, there's some videos from a group called The Bible Project. There are a couple Multnomah grads up in Oregon that put these videos together really well done, and they kind of give really good summaries. And I was trying to look at the summary of numbers and try to like put in my own words and um, make myself look intelligent, but the goal of today is that you guys learn, so I thought <laughs> it'd be best just to show that video um, as we go here. So this is a kind of an overview of the book, 
And um, before we do that, I just, I want to note with them that um, their whole theme, the Bible Project, when they put these videos together, is to show how uh, the Bible is one unified story. And that's really what I want to take away too. So that's kind of a lot of it. But this is kind of a quick overview of the book. Then there's another rebellion among the people that results in this snake attack. And what makes 
makes this story in the final section so surprising. Israel had just arrived in Moab, and the king of Moab is freaked out that this huge group of people is traveling through his land. So he hires this pagan sorcerer named <coughs> to pronounce curses on them. This guy means business. Yeah. So Balaam, he says, okay, I'm going to pray to the Hebrew god, and let's see what happens. And three different times he attempts to curse them, but each time he finds that he can utter only blessings. Most surprising is the last blessing, where he prophesies that out of Israel will rise a victorious king. And this king is somehow going to be connected to God's promise to Abraham to bless all nations through this family. So here's Israel rebelling down in the camp, totally unaware that up in the hills, God is protecting and even blessing them. The book ends here in Moab. Israel's getting ready to go into the promised land. They count up everyone again, just like at the beginning. They're leaving the old generation behind, including Moses. But before they leave Moses, he gives them his last words of warning and wisdom. And that speech is what the next book, Deuteronomy, is all about. We should just close in prayer. <laughs> that would be skirting my responsibilities, I think. Um, no, those, those are very helpful. They kind of give you a, a good overview. So that's the book of Numbers. Um, we're going to briefly, they talk really fast. I kind of talk fast too. I'll try not to. But I wanted to together kind of go through this and just kind of recap um, the overview of the book before I dive into those three application points that I think uh, we can take home. So first off, uh, I'm, and I'll go through kind of, I'll break it up in the same way that they did. So that first section where they're in the wilderness of Sinai, you got that initial census. Um, that's how the book starts, and then kind of how the, the camp is arranged. They talk through that. You guys can, if you haven't opened your Bible, open it to Numbers, but just keep your, uh, keep your finger moving because we're going to be moving through here fast. You're just, we're, we're zooming through at kind of a high-level, fast pace, and then we'll come back and kind of look at a few things. But Numbers, so arrangement of the camp. Um, I don't know if you guys, I had never noticed that the camp almost like forms like a cross. It's kind of cool. Did you guys see that? Um, I don't know if that was intentional. At least, I, it probably, I don't know. Um, but, you know, the, the presence of God being in the center of the camp, I think, was the main purpose of that. And I think that was really cool how God structured that. But um, there's um, initial laws, expectations for, for how the priests run things and things like this. And um, then pretty soon we get into um, some extreme measures. Either they're the laws, like the, the very kind of first time you fail, you're going to be killed, like <laughs> Jeff was talking about, stoning um, for some of these things. Or we even see some of them actually happen. You read the story of Moses, uh, or Aaron's um, sons and how they make what to us is like, well, what was the big deal? And they're dead, just like that. And um, when, when we come across these, you're going to run into a lot of them, not just in Numbers, but throughout the Old Testament. Um, I, I don't know if you guys feel this way, but I come across them, and I'm like, man, God, really? Like, did you have to be that extreme? And that's my temptation, and to think that. And I, I kept having that thought come into my mind, and almost like, um, you know, uh, if you're explaining it to your kids, you feel like, like you have to almost like apologize for God, like being so rash or something. It, you really realize that when you're, you're trying to explain it to your seven-year-old of, well, why did they die? Um, well, but as I kept coming across that emotion in my own heart, I, I was realizing, and I don't know if it's just Holy Spirit, but how many times when I read these uh, do I side with the side of the transgressor? 
And I instantly default to wanting to defend that person. And what does that tell me about my heart? If this is, I mean, I kind of almost felt, uh, not that God was speaking to me, but I almost felt like he was saying, um, who's on my side? Like, how many of you are agreeing and saying, yeah, God, good job? Like, and the fact that most of us, if we're honest, usually don't default to that, I think is, is something that we should check and a flag should go off in our head. Like, whose side are we on? And, and it's just a really simple way of saying that when we look at the scripture and we're tempted to, to want to change it, it's not the scripture that needs to change. It's us. So every time you come against these and you feel that conflict in your heart, take a moment, breathe, ask God to change your heart and to see it from his perspective. There is something else I think that we can see real quick though, and that's the idea of looking at the biblical narrative as a whole. Um, God has a bigger picture going on. We look at this singular act and we see um, what seems like a severe judgment or discipline, but God is painting a bigger picture. He's showing um, how big a deal it is to be out of sync with him. He's showing that mankind on his own without someone standing in the way uh, is, is annihilated by his holiness. He's showing that, yes, you know, that remember when, when God didn't interact with man, we ran off a cliff. The flood happened. God had to wipe us out. Um, when he starts interacting with man, he's trying to correct, course correct how we're going, and yet whenever he does and he comes up and if he brushes too close with man, there's no buffer. And so God's holiness cannot be in that fellowship with a sinful man. So all this is a story. God is showing the need. If he didn't show the need like this, we wouldn't understand how great of a savior we have by the time Jesus Christ steps on the scene. So remember the biblical narrative as a whole. Okay, moving forward, we get into um, that next kind of section and they start complaining, traveling. It seems like every time they pack up their bags and start moving, they start complaining complain about misfortunes, about meat. Um, They pray for meat, and actually God answers their prayer finally, and as soon as they eat it, he judges them. And that's, there's a very profound lesson that I think we need to come back to and look at that if we get time today. But where they pray, they ask God for something, and sometimes the answer that God gives doesn't necessarily mean it's a sign of his blessing, but that's kind of jumping ahead. Um, They complain about leadership, and uh, when they complain against Moses and, um, and Aaron and Miriam jump in on that too, and his brother and sister. And we see God's mercy and his justice both revealed in these. Um, we see that God is forbearing, that he is long-suffering. He, he has patience with these people, but not for forever. And this is a common theme we see throughout scripture, all throughout. Um, Exodus 34, it's when God revealed his name and he said, I am a long-suffering and merciful God. When we get to Numbers 14, it comes to a point where God says, you know what, I'm done with Israel. I'm gonna, I'm gonna wipe this people out. And Moses actually pleads on God's name that was revealed back here in Exodus 34. He says, don't you remember you said you're long-suffering? Please be long-suffering with this people. And he reminds them there. But throughout the Bible, um, David talked about God being long-suffering. Um, These passages in the New Testament warn us, though, that as long-suffering and patient and and, um, uh, he, he delays judgment, as much as that is our God, it doesn't last forever. There is an end. It's intended to lead us to repentance. And we see this start to happen through Israel. And the next section is really where that comes to a point. Chapter 13 and 14 hits kind of the tipping point in the book and really tipping point of Israel's history as a whole. 
Um, they send in the spies. Spies come back. They say, hey, this is great, but only two of them really say it's great. The other 10 grumble, complain, and the people then have a choice. Who are they going to follow with? This is a great little side note to just say the majority is not always right. In fact, biblically, it seems like it rarely is. Um, the majority is not always the camp that you should go with. As we look at this, these people um, came back, and in spite of all 12 of them, by the way, could have come back with a negative opinion, and the people still had a responsibility personally. But they pushed it too far, and they finally say, no, God, we don't believe you can take us in there. You've brought us out here to die, and God says enough is enough. He punishes that generation. He says, you will not enter, only your kids will. Anyone 20 years old and up are going to have to wait and die out here in the wilderness. And this is kind of an interesting point because we see it's too late to repent. Right after that, the people say, oh, okay, we're sorry, we're sorry. No, we're ready to go. And they try to go do it on their own and they lose the fight. And you see that there does come a point where God's patience runs out and where he says, no, enough is enough. And so they are unable, that generation, to enter the land. And things continue to go downhill from here. After this, we see there's disobedience and rebellion that kind of crops up. There's a Sabbath breaker who just outright breaks the law. He knows better. He does it. And so he's executed. And then we come to this rebellion of a man named Korah, which, by the way, his rebellion was centered around the fact that he says, um, shouldn't we all be close to God? Why is Moses the only one that gets to talk to him? Now, that really doesn't sound that bad if you think about it. Like, it's kind of what we all hope for through Christ, right? And that's the point. I think he's showing, God is showing through this rebellion, no, there still isn't a mediator. There still is sin in the way, and not everyone can just waltz into the presence of God. And so almost 15,000 people die in that rebellion, and the people still continue to rebel. They continue to travel, and uh, right after that happens, uh, and the people are punished, their discipline, Miriam dies. And even here, we see Moses and Aaron lose patience and humility. And I, just kind of a side note um, with this, so in case you don't know, they, they rebel in the sense, they don't really rebel, but what they do is God says, speak to the rock in a way basically that says, they know it's coming from me. And Moses gets out there and he goes, you rebellious people, oh, watch, I'm going to make water come from this rock. And he takes it on himself. And it becomes a question of God's authority. It becomes a question of Moses stepping into the place. But when you really look at the context of where Moses is at here, and this is kind of a side tangent, I don't want to go on too much, but uh, I think there's something we can grab. Uh, Moses just lost Miriam. His sister he's been with since he was in that basket in the Nile, okay? Um, not only that, he's been patient with his people. He has interceded for them. He's emotionally attached to this people. He's been excited, you know, no matter what we're going through, at least we're going to get to that promised land, and he just found out it's not going to happen. All these people that I've been pastoring and shepherding are now going to die. They blew it. After all that I went through, they blew it. And now my sister's the first to die with them. We can empathize with them. That is a heavy, heavy emotional toil that I can't even imagine. And I think that's the point. God is showing that as good of a man as Moses was, he was a man. And everyone has a breaking point. Everyone has a point where they cannot bear up. And because of that, 
Even Moses couldn't be the one that could give them rest. They needed a savior. They needed someone that could be touched with sin and yet not fall to sin. They needed someone that could be an ultimate leader. And so even in this, as tragic as it is for us to see, man, even Moses lost out and Aaron loses out, God is showing, yes, because they need a greater savior than Moses. So the story, the biblical narrative is God sees us and only he can see that and paint that. Um, Aaron dies soon after that and um, there's rebellion, there's this curse of the serpents, Um, people are complaining and then there's the the bronze serpent that's lifted up. And then in the last section we get to the wilderness of Moab. We can't touch on this a whole lot. Balaam is a very interesting character uh, in the scriptures. Um, Yet mostly he's a prideful guy that's trying to control God and we see that God won't have that. God has his own plan. And so Israel, after that, goes after other gods. They do another census, a few more battles, uh, a few more laws. And then we find this kind of aspect in the end, which I think we're going to have to touch on next week, but where Reuben and Gad decide, all right, uh, we don't need that promised land. Can we just take this little spot of dirt outside? Like, we're good with that. And God grants them what they want. And he gives them actually what they want. And in history, that becomes a snare for them. They get attacked by marauders. It's, a hor- it's not the promised land. And they settle for something less than God's best. In the end, there's kind of a chapter 33 through 36. They rewind and review. And then um, they're kind of standing on the edge of the land ready to go in. So that's kind of the overview of the whole book. Uh, zoom through. And there's just three things I want to pull out as we look at that um, in these last few minutes here. Um, first off, looking at this stiff-necked people, and I didn't coin that, God did. I actually wanted to change it because it feels uh, just weird to say, but um, I, I had to look it up as, as for the Hebrew word because uh, God repeatedly calls the Israelites this stiff-necked people, and I want to see what that means. So the word is this kashe, and it means obstinate, stubborn, harsh, or fierce. It's used over a dozen times in the Old Testament referring to the Israelite people alone. Um, usually it's something that was used to describe like a fierce, strong storm, a wind, like a driving wind. Nothing's going to, re- it's not going to relent. Um, it was sometimes used to describe like a harsh taskmaster, um, like Naomi's husband. If you remember, he was called a kasheh, a man. He was a harsh man. He was stubborn, obstinate, going one direction, not changing. Um, it's also used positively in Song of Solomon of um, like the kind of love, a fierce love that's unrelenting. So it does have positive ones as well. But when God referred to Israel quite often, I think the basic um, implication was this is a stubborn people that are determined to go in one direction. And often when he comes to Moses and says, get out of the way, I just want to wipe them out. It's because he says they're, they're not changing. Nothing's changing. Um, when I look at this and I think, um, I think of Israel and the people, and why did God choose Israel? This, this people, he knew what they were going to be. Even when he, he called Abram, he knew this kind of people would be this way. Um, and I, I was thinking, why did he choose that people to be the one that represented him? But when you think of Israel as a whole, all throughout history, even into modern day, Israelites are in some ways kind of like at the pinnacle of, of many, many things. I mean, when they do anything, they do it like really good. Like 
they're, they're some of the most intelligent and the most financial. They, they, they're just kind of really determined to get things done. And I think that's very intentional. God set this people up. He called them. Um, and, and he pulled out a people that are, they have extreme emotions at times. And he did this because he knew that when they do things right, they do it really well. But also, when they fail, they fail spectacularly. <laughs> They're kind of extreme in both reasons. And the reason I think God did this and he pulled out this people instead of a docile and quiet kind of people or something is because he wants to show almost that like the best of mankind still can't do it. And even in the best of mankind, there's a hard heart that's harder. It's like, almost like the, the stronger you get, the further you are from God. And, and you see this kind of throughout the history. And it's not just that. It's not just the people themselves. It's the way that God interacted with them. He was there speaking in person, talking to them, visibly showing himself. And we look at that and go, man, if God would just be that way with me, I'm sure I would change. And yet God is almost setting up like a, an extreme example of mankind to show even in this, you need a savior. You need a savior. And, um, and that's just kind of my, my thought when we look at Israel. Um, yeah, like he gets to pick whoever he wants. I mean, that's kind of the first thing uh, and foremost. Like he chose Israel and that's, that's fine. But I do think we see some kind of extreme examples of that. Um, so before we get too hard on Israel, um, the natural application that we need to come to is how different are we? This passage we read in 1 Corinthians today in chapter 10 um, you guys can look there and even kind of, if, if you choose to, since we're zooming so fast through numbers, you can leave that open because there, he touches on a few things there as we look at it, um, just aspects of the history of um, Israel. You know, they fell to idolatry, they fell to sexual immorality, they fell to all these things. And Paul, writing 1 Corinthians, says, you have to be careful as you look at their example that you don't fall by that. Um, Usually when we look at this, especially verse 12, we get down to no temptation to seize you except for what is common for man. That's, that's a common young person a motto for avoiding temptation. But really when you look at the history of Israel and you see the temptation that they had, the temptations that they were falling into, it had to do with pride. And really it had to do with like, do we really need God at all? Like, aren't we okay to do this on our own? And specifically, it had to do with something called unbelief. Turn, actually, I told you you could stay there and then I lied. Go to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through, um, what did I say, 13? Yeah, sure, we'll read that. Uh, we'll probably, as we go throughout the series in the next few weeks, be bouncing in and out of Hebrews a lot because the whole point of Hebrews is to show how these things were written for an example for us. And um, as much as they are an example, uh, they were also a shadow of things to come. So I'll probably be in and out of Hebrews a lot. But right here, early on, we see in verse 7, the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked at that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They're stiff-necked, they're stubborn, they're kashe. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers. This is where it's really critical for us. Lest there be in you an evil, 
unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another daily, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This, I think, specifically is the sin that we're, we're talking about when we look at Israel. They fell because of unbelief. And the temptation is for us the same. And no temptation has seized us except what is common to Israel, what is common to man. But the temptation is to lack faith that God can do what he has set out to do. And quite often I think we can fall into that same trap. A challenging thing for you to consider this week, how many sins that you are beset with continually root themselves in unbelief? I'll say that again. How many sins that we struggle with are rooted in unbelief? Think about that as you pray and meditate and ask God to show you this week. Because for me, when I really look at them, sometimes I'm facing this sin that's right in front of me, and yet it trickles back, honestly, to a point where I don't believe a promise of God, something that he told me, something that he said, I will be there, or I will give you strength to go through this, whatever it may be. I don't believe he's good. I don't believe he's better. And it roots in unbelief. So all these times when we look at Israel and we say, oh, well, it would have been so much different for me if I actually saw God in person, if I went through the Red Sea. Be careful, be careful. Israel's an extreme version of mankind in, in many regards. And if they didn't get it, then we won't either. A couple more things here, and then we'll, we'll close. Uh, the bronze serpent. Uh, I hate to really rush through this one, but um, I think the analogy is very clear, and we just took communion as well. Um, the people, they sin, and they repent, and they ask for um, intercession by Moses. And Moses does. He intercedes, and God says, okay, set up the serpent. It's kind of weird, um, and it's kind of strange for us that a serpent, I mean, many of us, when, when Jesus comes on the scene in John chapter 3, he's talking to Nicodemus, he says, as a serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And he's talking about this aspect, he's going to be lifted up on a cross. Um, so it's pretty easy to assume that it probably looked like a cross, whatever the, you know, it at least was similar in, in, in the thing. But it's like, why is there a serpent on the cross? Like, how is that a picture of Christ? And I had, I had to wrestle through this, and it really comes down to um, that verse that we find in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Our sin nature is linked with the great serpent, the rebellion that's been going on since Genesis, and that dwells within us. And the people, basically, in this story, they come to a point where they, they've gotten themselves in such a mess because of their rebellion that this thing's just wiping them out left and right. And God's, his solution is to simply look in faith at this and that there is a symbol, and that look of faith saves them. But it's very similar to the fact that our own natures, when Christ was on the cross, um, he actually became the serpent that dwells within us. He became our sin nature. And that, that act, um, even for us, we have the same responsibility to look just like they did. We look in faith as, uh, as the Israelites did. Um, it's, you guys have already been challenged this morning, um, but I will just repeat again. If you've never looked in faith um, to Christ, it's just a look that saves you. And that's all it takes. Um, last one, I'm gonna, we've already kind of talked about some, but Moses being a man 
was uh, unable to be the full intercessor that we need. And this, I think, is one of the the hardest things as I read the story of Moses because I empathize with him and I look at him and I say, oh man, how hard that would have been, how patient he was. It tells us that he's the most, he was the most meek man to, to live. I really can see that. Um, he had one blow up after all of this and yet uh, he was still a man and he wasn't enough to bring the people into the promised land. And so this, um, if you guys still have your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter three, I would just encourage you to meditate on the scripture this week as we don't have a time to unpack it a whole lot. But Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, talks about how Jesus is a better intercessor. And, and it goes throughout as you read through Hebrews, um, uh, the same kind of thing. <clears throat> if you guys can and you want to study that this week, also reference over to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, where it tells us that... Um, Christ always lives to make intercession for us because this is the great high priest that he is. Um, and where Moses was just a man, we have Jesus the Christ who can be our intercessor, who always lives. Um, so we're on the edge of the promised land and we're about ready to go in. Next week we're going to kind of, we'll obviously touch back on some of these things. Um, we kind of ran low on time today. But I want you guys to be kind of thinking about some of these things, some application points. One, that God sometimes does give us what we, we ask um, for, and, um, and it's not always good. Um, answered prayer requests are not always a sign of God's blessing. We see that throughout the story. This is one thing I, I really struggled with this week as I looked at this passage, uh, but all throughout Numbers, this was common. Of You find people, even Balaam, coming and saying, God, like... Uh, uh, he's coming and he's asking God and God's giving him exactly what he wants uh, and yet he's judging him and turning. And sometimes this is just a sign. James warns us not to ask amiss because um, sometimes that um, we can ask wrongly. Um, don't be stiff-necked and stubborn. How often are we? That's common. Um, and then um, where are we lacking faith? This is probably the, the main thing I want to leave you guys with is that aspect of unbelief and how, how often that can plague us. So ask God as you go through this and as we start to go out of Numbers and into Deuteronomy and you look at Moses' final kind of recounting of the law, um, look at this because he is basically talking to a people that are about to go into the promised land that are the children of those that rebelled. And in many ways, those children had a responsibility to learn from their parents, from their mistakes. And, and not repeat them. So you can almost put yourself in that same kind of spot as those children and saying, okay, well, what can I learn from my fathers? Even if you're not an Israelite today, you can look and see these people as example and say, how can I learn from the mistakes and not repeat those um, as I go forward? So let me, let me pray as we close out today. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what we see of you and your character throughout it. You are bigger than um, so many things, but Lord, um, you're bigger than our natures and, and our fallenness, and I thank you, God, for revealing yourself. I thank you for Christ, who is our intercessor. I thank you that um, we can come before him so freely, and uh, oh boy, we take that for granted. So we give you thanks and praise, God, and uh, just lift our hearts and our lives up to you as a, as a sacrifice and ask that you guide and direct us in this week 
as we uh, continue to follow you. In your name we pray. Amen.